From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center has a new director tonight. Lieutenant General Michael Groen comes to the Jake from his last job as Deputy Chief of Computer Network Operations at the National Security Agency. FedScoop reports the Senate confirmed him unanimously by voice vote. Small businesses will have a shot at a new government-wide acquisition contract later this month, according to a Federal Acquisition Service leader. Laura Stanton, the Assistant Fast Commissioner at the General Services Administration, says a request for information for the new Polaris vehicle will come soon, with a draft request for proposals coming, quote, in the next few months. FCW reports the agency may use online proposal submissions to make awards faster. Agencies have a new tool to measure their progress on technology business management. The IT Spending Transparency Maturity Model includes measures for engagement, taxonomy, data, automation, reporting, and value. FedScoop reports the CIO Council and ACT-IAC developed the model. The Defense Department has 2,100 deficiencies from its financial management statements. The department spent about $2.8 billion on financial management systems, but it doesn't track that spending. Asif Khan's director of the Financial Management and Assurance Team at the Government Accountability Office. Asif, welcome back. It's good to see you again. Is there a connection between those two numbers, between the 2,100 deficiencies and the amount spent on the financial management systems? Thank you, Francis. Great to be on the show. Uh, there isn't a connection with, between the two numbers. Uh, the 2,100 issues that were identified as a result of the audit, the $2.8 billion that is spending, which has gone on for a number of years in maintaining and upgrading the financial management systems. The DOD did not have upgrading their financial systems as part of their audit strategy. So therefore, there's no connection between the two numbers you've just mentioned. What's the trend line look like for those NFRs? For, is, are we headed in a good direction as a result of the audit process, or are we treading water, getting worse? What does that look like, Asif? The audits, according to the DOD themselves and the auditors, and our view as is providing value to the Department of Defense, uh, the 2100 findings that you've mentioned, that's only on the military departments overall. There are a number of other findings. The department has remediated about 25% of those findings, and that is quite a, an accomplishment. What's leading to that accomplishment? What are they doing well that maybe more of would, would help accelerate the process? They have understood their business process better than they did before. As a, as a result, they can then fix the internal control weaknesses. The systems weaknesses or the IT weaknesses are a bit more on a longer trend because obviously the IT weaknesses take a little bit more digging into uh, before they can implement any change. Is this a situation where the department understands what those IT weaknesses are and is in, in the process of remediating them or are these so complicated, so complex or, or maybe so far out in the future as far as the strategy goes that they haven't gotten that far yet? It's going to take time. Uh, the department has different approaches um, over the years. 
but it's critical that the department look at the auditor findings and get down to the key issues or the root cause which is causing them this problem. This is important not only in the IT issues, but also in the financial reporting issues as well. But it's critical in the IT issues that they have a broader look at what the deficiencies are in the systems because not all the IT systems related to financial management would be part of the audit scope. So they can identify the weaknesses in one system and the DOD management has to look at to see what other systems may be impacted by similar type of situations. One of the recommendations that you and your colleagues make in this work is interesting to me, and it's the last one on the list, limiting investments in financial management systems to what's essential to maintain functional systems and to help ensure system security until DOD implements the other recommendations. That strikes me as maybe the most important one because it's kind of the old idea of pouring good money after bad, isn't it? Right, very much so. Um, we made six recommendations, perhaps I can link them to them. It was crit it's critical for DOD to be able to develop milestones and plans which links the system's uh, remediation to their overall financial management strategy. The overall financial management system strategy is very robust. It says that the financial management should be driven, should be systems-based, standards-reliant, uh, and also it should be affordable. So it's critical for that strategy to link with the amount of investments they're making. There are a few gaps. DOT does not have a road map as to how they will be able to achieve their overall system strategy. So one of our recommendations is they develop milestones and targets to be able to achieve the overall visions. So in that respect, it's very important for them to control their investments so they're not spending money on systems which is not going to provide value. Otherwise, they will end up making short-term fixes which will be very inefficient and costly in the long term. I read between the lines of your work here in some of these recommendations that idea of a roadmap because a couple of the recommendations pertain to establishing those milestones that you referenced a moment ago and setting up performance measures so that you, you know what you're getting basically as a department. Did I read that right? Absolutely, you did. And those recommendations are not new. We had made similar type of recommendations, albeit at a higher level going back six, seven, eight, nine years, uh, though DOD has come a long way in terms of developing an enterprise architecture, but it doesn't have sufficient detail which go down to the specific department's financial management systems in terms of a transition plan and how that transition plan links to the roadmap and how that links to the overall financial management system strategy. So it's very critical they link all these. We have about a minute left and that's where I wanted to finish up. You and I, of course, have been talking about these issues for a long time. I recognize the terminology in some of these recommendations from the conversations we've had historically. And that's where I wanted to leave it. Is the department making progress? And are we getting to more and more granular aspects of the improvements they need to make? Or are these still pretty broad reaching improvements that we were talking about some time ago? The department has made substantial progress over the last few years as a result of these audits. They have gotten more granular information and the department is meeting its goal of using these audits to improve their business processes. The 25%, uh, it's, it's a number out there, but it's quite an impressive number because the other thing to keep in mind that the findings are going to increase as the audits go. But again, 
it's a very good number to start off with, and it's encouraging to see that the department is heading in the right uh, direction. The key is going to be that they stay on track, they keep their focus, the tone of the top continues to be encouraging and supportive, uh, supportive of these audits. Asif Khan of the Government Accountability Office, great to see you again. Thank you very much. Thank you, Francis. Great to be with you. Up next, strategic thinking for technology investments. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the upgrades your agency can invest in now that'll pay off after the virus is a memory. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. Some agencies are telling employees to return to the office soon. Others are preparing for long-term or indefinite remote work. As the new fiscal year is underway, agencies are facing decisions about how to think ahead. Tony Towns Whitley's president of U.S. Regulated Industries at Microsoft. Tony, it's good to see you again. Thanks for coming on. Strategically, what would you like to see agencies thinking about for the entire fiscal year or maybe a couple years out and not just tactically over the next couple of months because of the pandemic? Yeah, so strategically, Francis, I think we all uh, understand that there will be some form of hybrid workplace. And so really hybrid and resiliency are the big themes that, we, that we've been bantering about with various agencies in the federal government around how that return to that workplace will, will be conducted, as well as what's the technology supporting it. At the end of the day, you know, first we know that uh, many agencies immediately during the crisis started to turn on tech that they had had for years, started to challenge some of the mandates uh, around sort of trusted internet connection and other mandates that were there and really started to just create cloud-like, cloud opportunity experiences for their employees to directly connect in. They're going to still want that capability. So we're going to be in a hybrid cloud environment on-prem and in the cloud. And so the key thing that agencies have to take away is how do you do that securely? How do we understand security in this environment? How do we understand resiliency in this environment? And quite frankly, some mindset shifts, Francis, that I think are going to have to happen from, if you will, security to resiliency. One of the themes that I'm hearing from practitioners across government over the last couple of months, Tony, is a, a kind of a different uh, dialogue, or different names for stuff. We're not talking about IT modernization so much anymore as we're talking about digital modernization. From a vendor perspective, what do you think that transformation means? Well, look, it's a combination of understanding the role of a platform, the platforms that government uses to, to build capability, uh, to build its own sort of applications and systems, as well as to adopt and adapt the state-of-the-art capabilities that exist in the commercial market. You know, we're, we're starting to see this conversation around how do we provide digital services? How do we do that with digital fluency, which means the skilling of all of the government employees to really understand how to leverage these new tools? And quite frankly, a, a, the most significant conversation has been around zero trust. How do we do this in an architecture that doesn't assume any trust, that only creates security based on roles and access to various systems. That's the shift that we see happening in sort of the modernization of tech. Another shift that I'm seeing is a tremendous interest, if not actual execution yet, although there is a lot of execution around automation. What's the convergence of a lot of these pieces, Tony? 
Yeah, so what, here's what we saw even during the pandemic. You know, the use of artificial intelligence and automation coming together. I think of the VA, I think of CDC, the Center for Disease Control, how quickly they started to leverage bot frameworks to do the triage work to allow, quite frankly, clinicians to, to do medical interventions during the crisis. And particularly during the, the peak uh, moments of the crisis, we started to see that leverage of bot technology. I think you're gonna see that going forward for all forms of triage, uh, not only in the medical field, but you'll see it in other areas. You know, one other kind of technology, I think for us that you'll see, high performance computing. Our financial services industry, absolutely using some of the highest performance computing models to understand risk in different markets. So we're starting to see the adoption of what we've been calling evolving technologies into what would be mainstream management of government. And what is happening in the private sector, especially in the financial sector, is interesting to me. And I wonder what your peers, presidents and vice presidents of various other sectors around the world for your company are telling you what they're seeing that might be useful to the folks in the federal government, Tony. Well, you know, one of the best examples that I can give when I think about the financial services industry, even, and it connects to our federal government in terms of the CARES package and all of the uh, infusion of capital that was that was uh, instituted through the government packages. You know, we start talking about what is it to do lending? What is it to do lending during a pandemic? You're talking about remote lending. So the first effort for most of the financial services industry was around COOP or continuity of operations. They had to figure out how to maintain business continuity before they could keep the lending or how they could enable lending. I think most federal agencies had to focus on mission continuity and then how do we continue to provide digital services in this remote everything world. You mentioned resiliency earlier in our conversation and it fits with this this idea about Coop Tony and I wonder you, you mentioned I think rightfully that agencies leveraged investments that they'd been making historically they didn't have to go out and buy a whole bunch of new stuff. What do you think that says about the way that agencies plan for Coop moving forward because we don't know what the next thing is going to be we just know there's going to be a next thing at some point in time. You're absolutely right, France. I think right now there's there's an inventory going on across the federal government. All of a sudden, we use the word technical debt, which is that, that technology that has been purchased has not been adopted, that becomes legacy and actually becomes sort of a debt to the federal government or and to the specific agency. I think there's an assessment going on where we're looking now to say, hey, we've purchased all of this capability. How do we adopt it? How do we make sure that it's in full use, but also how do we now build in unique digital capabilities that are needed for the specific agency itself? Um, I think going forward, we're gonna see uh, not only a hybrid workplace, not only a hybrid cloud environment, but a new mindset towards the role that technology is playing to drive mission. Tony Towns Whitley of Microsoft, thanks very much for joining me. Great to be back, thanks friends. Up next, a cyber risk management framework for every agency. Straight ahead on Government Matters, transforming infrastructure to cut down on cyber attacks. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. Welcome back. A new bill in the Senate would require agencies to implement a cyber risk management framework. Under the bill, the Office of Management and Budget would create a risk-based budgeting model every agency would use. Richard Spires is principal at Richard A. Spires Consulting, former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Richard, welcome. It's good to see you again. 
you and some of your colleagues are doing some work on risk management more broadly across government. How does the, what does a risk management framework look like in the context of cybersecurity? Uh, yes, Francis, I, I am involved with uh, ACT, IACT, and a, a number of us are working on a, on a set of papers related to how can the government improve its uh, capabilities uh, in a number of areas, but particularly in the risk management, enterprise risk management. I think the pandemic has shown that uh, on the one hand, I think government responded fairly well in being able to work virtually and the like, but it also exposed systemic weaknesses uh, with a, a lot of the legacy systems that we have today, uh, but also from a cybersecurity standpoint, we are just not where we need to be. So picking up on that theme, I'm a big believer in enterprise risk management and cybersecurity. What, what is the, where are the, where's the information coming from that agencies can use best for a risk management framework in, uh, regarding cybersecurity and what don't they have that they should have, Richard? Well, if we, if we back up and look at the history of this, uh, the FISMA, original FISMA Act, which relates to uh, cybersecurity and how government deals with it, was passed in the early 2000s. And, you know, and it had the right intentions at that time, but the problem with it is that it, it really looked at cybersecurity from a system by system kind of basis. And, and the, that culture and that approach is still, uh, we're still living with that today. And in fact, I was just talking to two different agencies in the last month where this came up and both of them were talking about the fact way too compliance based, really not getting at the core of what we need to do. The good news is that the NIST cybersecurity risk management framework, a, a relatively new framework that was uh, created in the like 2015 and has been maturing since then, really does a, from an enterprise perspective, from a top-down perspective, looking at what are your vulnerabilities, uh, what are the threats, and then getting you to focus as an agency on the, on the most important things to address. So I go back to like the OPM data breach. And in that breach, I mean, it was stunning to me when you go back and look, OPM just did not take it seriously enough. Their, their most valuable assets and data, okay, these 21 million records of, of personnel records, and they just did not take that seriously. If they had focused their efforts on what was the, what were the most vulnerable things they had, what was the most important data that they had, I think they could have done a much better job. And so the idea of the NIST cybersecurity framework is to do just that. So I'm, I'm enthralled to see that there might be legislation that pushes us further along those lines. We need to continue to work on the culture and change the culture and how we're doing enterprise risk management in, uh, in the federal government. As I read about this legislation and then read the recommendations that you and your colleagues through ACT-IAC are making, I saw some parallels. They're not identical, Richard, but they're very similar. Uh, you and your colleagues are, are uh, advising the establishment of an enterprise risk officer that would work out of OMB, empowering agency chief risk officers, not specifically dedicated to cyber, but it sounds like that's the same strategy that Senator Portman and Senator Peters want to take specifically towards cyber. Do you think I'm reading that right? I, I believe you are. And in, in fact, having served in government a few times, I, I've learned that if, if you want to get something done, you need to take a senior executive and put them in charge and empower them to get it done. It, it just, it, 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 in order to work through the bureaucracy and the like. So this idea of having an enterprise risk officer at an OMB level that would drive it across the federal government, I think is sound. 
And so many of these risks, and you're right, it's well, but it's way beyond just cyber risks. But some of these risks really uh, cross agency boundaries, and that's where it gets so difficult in government. You know, it's hard enough within an agency to drive change, but then when you're looking about crossing agency boundaries and getting multiple agencies to play together, that's where you really need to have someone like at an OMB level who's then working with the agencies. And, and then if every agency has their own risk management officer, okay, then you've got, if you will, a cadre of, of executives that are working this problem collectively. What's the best way to integrate that person into the org chart that already exists so it doesn't become just an add-on that people don't pay attention to and so that it doesn't become another silo that it becomes a position that interacts well with the rest of the management inside OMB. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, I mean, we do believe that it's someone that should be reporting to the head of OMB um, and the, the deputy, so that's important. But, um, but to your point, you know, none of these positions should be silos. And uh, as you know, and I've written a lot about and worked a lot on governance within an agency or even with an OMB is so important to be able to bring the right people together um, in order to drive these things. But I come back to this point. We also talk about in the recommendations, this idea of having these outcome leaders. So uh, beyond just risk management, uh, think of these as, as, as if you will, um, empowered program managers, if you will, in government. Like for IT modernization as an example. I mean, that's something that many agencies, where they talk a good game, frankly, we are not modernizing our IT nearly as fast as we need to. So why don't we set up programs specific to IT modernization, have empowered um, outcome leaders that are driving those, like what we did in the IRS uh, when I was running the, the, the business systems modernization program. I mean, certainly there were issues with that, but we had a lot of success. And why did we? It was a very focused effort with the right kind of people involved. Richard Spires, thanks very much. Great to have you back. Always good to be back, Francis. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available as an audio podcast now. You get it every day on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.